Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. While the Me Too movement was a critical step towards identifying widespread sexual harassment as a real problem and forged a path towards addressing that problem, it's really just the beginning. Part of what makes sexual harassment so pervasive is how hard it is to talk about. Of course, it's difficult for victims of sexual harassment, but it's also difficult for everyone else to speak about. Today's guest specializes in helping overcome that difficulty with the goal of preventing sexual harassment. Sarah Beaulieu is an author, speaker, and and trains workplaces on sexual harassment, prevention, and response. Her book, Breaking the Silence Habit, a practical guide to uncomfortable conversations in the Me Too workplace, offers employees and managers a path forward to learn and teach the skills required for safe and respectful workplaces for people of all genders. Sarah writes and speaks frequently about sexual harassment and violence. Her work and expertise has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Boston Business Journal, Fox News, and the Providence Journal, to name a few. She's been a featured speaker at TEDx Beacon Street and the Business Innovation Factory Summit. Sarah enjoys engaging and training audiences uh, on a wide variety at a wide variety of organizations, ranging from startups to larger companies and from national conferences for fraternity members to members of the Junior League. In 2017, Sarah founded the Uncomfortable Conversations Incorporated, a nonprofit organization dedicated to normalizing conversations about sexual violence, especially for young men. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jim. Excited to talk to you about this. Absolutely. Um, Why don't we just jump right in? Uh, What makes these topicals? Man, I can speak English, I promise. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it's good we'll get we'll get right into the just the discomfort of talking about everything <laughs> yeah language is hard um it is what makes these topics so difficult to talk about oh i think it i mean they're difficult for so many reasons and and different reasons for different people too so i mean i think it's you know sometimes these conversations you know we're, we're un unpr- i would say one is we're pretty unpracticed at talking about boundaries, bodies, and behaviors uh, in any setting, but especially in a workplace setting. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes you have people who are identifying really strongly with people who experience sexual harassment, so it makes it a, a, a charged topic for them. And sometimes you're speaking with somebody who might identify with somebody who's a perpetrator or alleged perpetrator of sexual harassment, and that also makes it it's a difficult and, and um, challenging topic to talk about. So I think there's, I think it's, you know, primarily it's just we come to this topic with a lack of experience. Um and it, and it gets in our way. I mean, it's like you would never assume that, you know, go into a group of, of people and, and try to s- just start speaking French to them without having a, any understanding of like what their language capacity was on that language. <laughs> um, I, I laugh because one of my colleagues literally did that all day yesterday. Spe- oh, was, spoke spoke a, a new language Specifically to was or? walking around speaking French to people. Great. How did um, that go? It was awkward. <laughs> no one speaks French except for him, so. <laughs> but he just yes. kept doing it. What a uh, that's just hilarious um, for the for what you know the connection 
uh, to what happened. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's it's understandable why it's so challenging to talk about these things. I mean, I think that it's kind of a testament to how serious things have gotten that people are talking about it at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's also, you know, what's what's happening is that the the Me Too movement in many ways created a much more public awareness of something that was pervasively happening already, right? And it's turned up a, a volume on the conversations, but it hasn't necessarily changed the productivity or effectiveness of those conversations or, to, or helped to transform them into the skills that we're going to need to navigate work in gender diverse workplaces, which are not going away. Yeah, um, I mean, and you mentioned that the you know one of the, the sort of at the core of this is that people don't have practice, and you and I have spoken about this before, you know. And I related a story to you about a situation where I saw someone get harassed in front of me, and I didn't know what to do, so I didn't do anything, you know. Yeah. And I and I know that it's it's not just that scenario, but it's people always talk about fight and flight response, but there's a third, much more common response, which is the freeze response. And, mm-hmm. you know, something happens that gets your, your heart pumping, it gets the adrenaline going. It's pretty common for people, especially if it's a novel situation, not to know what to do and then to not do anything. I, yes, I think that's absolutely. I mean, so I, I think the, the fight, flight or freeze perspective is, is an important one to keep in mind, particularly around higher skill kinds of interventions. So what you were talking about was witnessing somebody who was, in fact, being sexually harassed in a way that felt really unsafe for everybody for everybody in the room. You know, I think part of the other thing that I that I talk about is thinking about this topic through the lens of habits, right? So we are, you know, we have a habit of seeing or experiencing the feeling of discomfort and just staying silent about it. Whereas when we're thinking about what are the skills that we really need in order to prevent sexual harassment from taking place, we have to start talking about things before they turn into incidents, which means that we have to break our habit of silence and start having conversations about things that like, you know, like, hey, when you meet a new person, like, do you shake their hand? Do you give them a hug? Do you kiss them on the cheek? Like, how is that for you? Why do you like to do what you do? It's like those are it's like talking about things before they happen rather than waiting for somebody to get groped and then like having a high like a much more higher stakes kind of conversation being required. How um, to what degree do you think that the difficulty speaking about sexual harassment is contributing to the problem? I think it's it is significantly contributing to the problem, and and I think it's some it's some of our, um, I think it's some of our beliefs about what those conversations ought to look like. So you know, so when I think about, um, when I think about conversation, I think about conversation as a kind of a single moment in time, like a conversation that might take place you know between two people. But I also think about it as a, as a cultural or community commitment to a series of conversations, right? So I think part of what we sometimes get hung up on is that, you know, we need to have like one conversation that's going to prevent sexual harassment. So like typically that conversation is a 45 minute compliance training uh, now that's sometimes delivered on, you know, delivered online where like we will, I will tell you what the rules are and, and what needs to happen and what will happen if you break the rules, but I'm not going to actually give you any skills or opportunity to practice. So it's like we kind of have these ideas that 
you know, or or we witness something that is uncomfortable or there's somebody who is has some troubling attitudes and behavior and we think that we can have one conversation with them that will then permanently transform who they are as a human being. And really it's about how do we embrace conversations, particularly conversations on this topic as a practice for ourselves individually, a practice for an organization. And that's going to be what leads to the kind of change that we want to see. Um, so many, so many different aspects there to talk about. Um, do you believe that people can be with, you know, with dedicated effort can be, uh, shown the right way, particularly people that maybe, uh, maybe don't understand that the things that they're doing are unacceptable and damaging? Uh, Well, I mean, so what I will say is that my area of expertise is not on supporting perpetrators of sexual harassment or violence and kind of like finding their way to a a new life, though, you know, just I I would say as a human being, like, I, you know, I I do believe that people can change. And um, but what 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 I do know from through the lens of sexual harassment and sexual violence prevention is that the community around you plays a significant role in preventing harmful behavior from continuing or escalating. So if you kind of think about a spectrum of behavior, so this is one of the core principles of of helpful intervention or bystander intervention, is if you think of a spectrum of behavior where on one side of the spectrum is behavior that's like absolutely 100% respectful, safe, consensual, and on the other end of the spectrum is behavior that is is you know physically violent there's a range of behavior and attitudes that take place before that right and so part of what the principle of bystander intervention is is that the more that we as a community take responsibility for intervening on the earlier ends of the spectrum the less likely it is for that behavior to escalate to a point that causes harm to others and so when we are all taking responsibility for the safety and respect of our workplaces um, collectively we have power whereas individually we may not have that same kind of power and it's the power to hold people accountable and responsible. So it's it's less about whether they're going to change on the inside, but it's more about whether or not they believe that the culture is enabling or empowering them to continue to commit harmful behaviors. Right, right. Um, how do you how do you approach getting organizations to how do I put it exactly? Maybe we should specifically talk about bystander intervention. You know. That's the situation I was in where I was watching someone get harassed and I didn't know what to do. And I you know, that's very very common. And we we had when we spoke earlier we mentioned that perhaps you could be trained that you can be trained to know what to do in that situation. And it's obviously not a clear and obvious thing. It's something that you need to be shown. How do you go about getting people to understand that there is training required, that it's an end to, and how does that, what does that training look like? So, I mean, what the, what the training looks like is, you know, is pretty straightforward, right? So it's one, you explain to people the concept of a spectrum of behavior and why it's important to intervene. You then talk about what are the, what are the four types, styles of intervention that, um, that you know, can be used in those kinds of situations. So one is one is to be direct. So that's a and that's what most people think intervention is. It's like saying something to the person who's perpetrating the harassment. That's only that's only one of one of the four. Um, the the other three are to disrupt the behavior. So that's, you know, that could be to disrupt or to distract, right? To kind of create some kind of distraction. So, you know, like spill your drink on somebody or, you know, be like, hey, I think you're needed like in the other room or I hear someone 
call. I hear your mom calling you, right? It's like, I mean, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. So it, like, it would depend on the, the context. Right. Um, delegate. So this is one where um, delegating works best if you also have an understanding of power and bias, right? So I think part of what makes, you know, your your ability to, to intervene effectively depends on, you know, it depends on one, knowing the strategies, but two, recognizing who you are in the context of a situation and, and what others might bring to different styles of intervention. So this is, again, where it kind of gets back to like doing a lot of practice is helpful, but you can delegate, right? So I could, so let's say, you know, I, uh, this actually just happened, this happened to me the other night on the train coming home from, from work where there was, you know, a, a man who was verbally accosting female passengers on the train. And so, um, so I, you know, I, I actually, I did a, a couple of these. So the last one is to, um, is to delay or to defer, which is basically to speak to the person who has been victimized. So what I did is I, I stood up and, and I went over to the person who had just been verbally accosted and I said, Hey, are you okay? And I said it loud enough for everybody to hear, can I walk you off the train? Do you need someone to walk you off the train safely? So it's a, basically like my message was, is like, I care about the safety of this train, and and I'll I'll do something about it. And so the message wasn't only for that person. That right. message is also for the is also for the other people around and has an impact on the community. But then at that point, you know, the woman gets off the train and the man continues to verbally assault some, you know, verbally accost somebody else. You know, uh, you know, and now we're me and this other woman are standing between the man and the person that he is is verbally accosting. But it started to feel scary, right? I mean, I was he was physically bigger than me. So what I did is I looked down the train and I made eye contact with a man and I said, help, can you please help us? And he said, I got you. And then he was able to intervene in a way that was different, right? And so he was able to, you know, sort of like do more of that, um, you know, sort of physical power language of why don't you have a seat? And, you know, and I think in this case, it's, it's you know, I'm not going to, in that particular moment, I'm not going to change the fact that this man has a thing, you know, of verbally accosting women and not verbally accosting men, but I'm going to use that to my advantage and, you know, get a helpful, you know, get, get a helpful person who can, you know, be helpful if activated and intervene in a way that's going to be appropriate for that situation. So everybody gets off the train safely. And that was what we wanted in the end. Right. And so, um, but is it, but you can, you know, you can teach people that. And the way that you teach them that is that you, you know, you would come up with, um, a few realistic scenarios kind of at varying levels, probably at varying levels. And you have people come up with ideas of what they, they would say, um, in that, that would represent each of those four kinds of, um, intervention tactics. So again, those are delay, delegate, disrupt, and direct. It's kind of called the four D's of, of bystander intervention. And then you would, and then you would practice those. And then there's another advantage of practicing them in a group setting, right? Like you could give this to somebody as like a written assignment, but but what you what happens when you practice those kinds of scenarios and conversations in a group setting is that I start to be able to hear where I'm like, okay, well, maybe my personal style is a little more like, you know, maybe I'm more skilled at delegating, but there's somebody who's like really good at direct and, you know, particularly with a different style of person than me. And so by, by being able to hear other people, you also... So then start to think about like, well, how would I activate the right kinds of people to help in different kinds of situations? So it's, I mean, you could do, you can do it in an hour to 90 minutes. And then I think, it, and it's just such a great, you know, whether it's inside of the office or if you have organizations that are interacting with, with people, you know, at conferences, on the road, in client situations where it's, you know, I think it's, it's just such a useful skill to have and to practice. Yeah, it's very interesting. Some of those, you know, the when I think back on what I would have said 
you know, and I think a lot of people do this, you tend to want to have directly engaged them, right? I think that's perhaps the most obvious one is to say, hey, you stop or that's not right. Mm -hmm. You know, so some of these other ones are, I think, a lot less obvious, particularly um, the distract one, which I find very interesting. Um, Can you just talk a little bit more about sort of the rationale behind that and what happens afterwards? Is it just to stop the moment or does it have a long lasting effect or? Well, I mean, I think there's there's two parts to it, right? So I think it's is, you know, one is is when you reorient your goal. So it's like so if your goal is to stop the bad person from being a bad person, right? Right. That's that feels like a very overwhelming goal. You're probably (laughs) also not going to be like, I mean, even if you what, like, like, is there something that you would be able to say that would achieve that effect in the moment? It's like, no, but if, but if you reframe that to, um, you know, my goal, my goal is to reestablish safety and respect in this moment. And so like, that's your goal. And also I would argue that it's like, you know, punching punching some guy in the face is like you know well that might you know that might momentarily feel good that actually doesn't does, doesn't achieve the goal of of you know maintaining safety and respect in the space that you're in <laughs> and so, so so like you don't you don't want to escalate you want to de-escalate and so you know and you want to stop the harm from taking place mm-hmm. so so simply by disrupting, then like the, the harm is, you know, then you can, you're then in a position of being able to more intentionally and safely handle what's going to happen next. And so, and it, you know, I think it gives you, it gives you that moment. So you interrupt it, you interrupt the, the harmful behavior that's happening or the troubling, you know, the troubling comments or the troubling, you know, actions. And, and then that gives you an opportunity to think, okay, well, what do I do next? It doesn't mean that you never have a, a direct conversation with somebody who was um, perpetrating something like that, but, but certainly having a conversation with them after, after the fact, when you've thought about who's the right person to have the conversation right. with this person um, is, you know, is better than jumping, you know, sort of jumping in and escalating something um, in a lot of situations. Right. And I, you know, I imagine that it's useful to have more than one tool because each yes. situation's different. Yes. Um, you know, I've seen that that thing on the train, not necessarily with um, with it being, you know, a sexual harassment style, but I've I've attend I've been on the subway in New York City quite a few times and aggressive people show up and they start mm-hmm. spouting off and almost every time Everyone just looks down. They get out of the way and they wait for they wait for the person to go away. Yeah. You know, um, I think a couple of times I've witnessed it turn into fist fights. But other than that, you know, it's and it's that instinct, right, to just shut down and just hope hope it doesn't, you know. And, and on a on a subway, at the end of the day, everyone goes home and a situation doesn't really exist anymore. I'm sure people take that trauma home with them. But in a workplace, it's something like it keep it's a it's a place you have to go back to, with those same yes. people, and it, it's a real thing that has to that continues to happen. Um, it's just interesting. I'm sure our listeners have all have moments like these where they've seen yes seen that instinct come out to do to do nothing, 
Well, right. And I think it's unfortunately, you know, it's like from the human resources perspective, it's oftentimes, you know, the the human, it's like the human resources person is the one who's left to have the direct conversation. And those conversations are hard. And, um, and, you know, but I think it's to the extent that you can empower the other employees and managers in the organization to learn skills of intervention and apply them before really bad things take place. Like that's what we're talking about, right? Because it's, you know, I think the, you know, the other reason that it's it's helpful is, again, kind of going back to that concept of spectrum of behavior is that when you have those, you know, you learn a lot about somebody um, when you intervene earlier rather than later, right? So it's like you learn who has problems with boundaries, you learn who has problems with power, you learn who, you know, people who mm. can't, you know, can't manage conflict, you learn people who can't take no for an answer. So I mean, I think it's like, there's a lot of things that you can learn. Like if somebody gives you feedback on your behavior, and you and you throw a tantrum about it and start, you know, spewing out a bunch of insults or behave in a way that's really unproductive, then like, I would rather find that out before you've caused serious harm or, you know, put put your organization in, you know, potentially at a in a legal situation because of the way that you've acted. Yeah, it's, um, it's a really good point. You don't want to see you don't want someone that is prepen- you know, has a propensity for exploding to explode in situ. Right. Um, you say that this can be done in an, in an hour or 90 minutes. Uh, is it just oh, a bystander intervention? That's like, that's only one of many skills that you okay. need in order to prevent and respond <laughs> to sexual harassment. So. But you know, it's the yeah. idea that you can, you can act out these things and just the experience of having said it with, in a practiced way, done, you know, done one of your interventions is a is something that you can then call upon more successfully afterwards in the real world yeah i mean i think i think you can get people to a basic level of understanding and skill around it right so then it's like that's you know an hour is not going to turn you so you know what i described to you of like what i did on the train is i basically directed a bystander an effective bystander intervention scene by activating the right kinds of people on the train right and so it's like so and you and you so you would need to invest more time and energy to training people up to that level which again is like you know you and you wouldn't need everybody in the organization to have that kind of you know that kind of skill but you'd want some of them to have it so that if they're witnessing you know it's like if they're witnessing something it's like you also just don't want one person to always be the person who's intervening like that's exhausting and not fair for that person like you want everyone to have a basic level of skill and you want some people to be really good at it there's something that you know i talk about this stuff a lot with my colleagues and coworkers. um there's something that i keep coming upon and you know maybe maybe it won't be particularly uh useful for the podcast but since i have an expert on the line a lot of the things that people do when they're sexually harassing people are straight up illegal i mean they've yes. broken a law and yet the response is always how do we handle this from an employment scenario? You know, I'll give you an example. It's a pretty insane one. I uh, I was uh, supposed to be doing a podcast with someone that was a, uh, she basically handled uh, crises. And someone had, you know, she was late for the meeting because someone had called her with hopes that she would talk to uh, the CEO of this organization who during a sensitivity training uh, sexually assaulted the woman giving the training in front of all of the leaders of the organization. Oh, like like groped the person. Yeah, great. Um, and the this organization's 
and it was you know which is just unbelievable that it could happen at all you know when the hr person took that took that man aside and said you can't do that he said well you know there wasn't anything to grab anyway like suggesting that oh lovely because yeah. she had small breasts that it was right. okay for him to touch them in front of everybody you know and meanwhile that's a direct crime with you know 13 witnesses why yeah. why is it that these people aren't being prosecuted that's i mean yeah. they're, they're calling mean, someone to fix it like like this guy is even possibly able to be fixed Meanwhile, a crime has been committed with witnesses in front of everybody. Yes. I mean, I think it's, you know, the the criminal justice lens, I mean, like, there's a lot of ways to unpack this one, Jim. So let's think about the, the way that would be the most effective for your listeners. <laughs> um, so... I mean, so I think it's, you know, so what we know, and it, again, so it's like, so if you're thinking from about sexual harassment, which includes anything up to, you know, up to sexual assault, rape in a, you know, in a workplace environment, um, to, you know, the estimates are 25% to 85%, depending on your industry and company, right? So, and, and kind of the way, and also sometimes in some cases, the way that you ask the question, up to 75% of incidents are just not reported. Right. So... So I think it's, you know, so thinking about about the the reasons why people don't report are actually similar to the reasons why sexual harassment takes place. Right. So it's is that we are not doing our part to create environments of safety, trust and respect. And so so there's there are a ton of really good reasons why somebody wouldn't report. Um, You know, one of them would be just sort of fear of professional or personal retaliation. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to, and I think it's, you know, the, as we have recently saw with the Victoria's Secret case, like retaliation is, is like, it's not an irrational fear. <laughs> like it's, it's a pretty rational yes, fear. It really and is. And so, and, you know, and, and so, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's also just like the, the shame and the social stigma that comes with it. They're like, you know, that desire to like, well, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. It's like, you know, it's a, you're thinking, you know, there's a lot, again, there's like, there's a lot of reasons and some of them are in like, some of them are individual uh, and some of them are um, cultural based. Right. So it's, it's, uh, you know, if there were 15 people in the room, there were 15 people who could have intervened in that situation. But instead, we focus on the one person who did who perpetrated the act. And we fo- and then we focus on the person who was the victim to the, you know, to the act. And we say, well, why don't why aren't they filing a report? And I'm like, well, that, you know, that incident made everybody feel unsafe. And yeah. so, you know, when you think about, you know, when we think about kind of what are our strategies, you know, what are the strategies that we have in place? It's like everybody was really silent, right? And and I would also guess that with this particular person that that, you know, that it wasn't that this was a person who, you know, every other thing that they've ever said in their life or in workplace context was like safe and respectful. I'm going to just go out on a limb and guess that that's not the case. So, so, so uh, my, so meaning that there were likely opportunities to intervene earlier, um, that, that were missed opportunities. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, and I don't have a lot of insight into it, and I'm never going to get it because, you know, now it's a, a matter, a legal matter that they're handling. But my understanding is that they were in that sensitivity training because of the guy, because of the CEO. 
Right. You know. Well, like, then, like, where's this board? Like, I mean, where are his friends? Like, does he not have any friends? Does he not have a board of directors who's holding him accountable, who, like, recognizes the, you know, the impact of his behavior on the financial future of this organization? Um, you know, yeah. it's like, I, I have lots of, que- I would have, I have lots of questions, but it's, you know, cause I think the other thing is, is that if the 15 people in the room were like his employees, he was the one with the most, you know, it's like, he was the one with the most power, but yeah, but it's, yeah, we can't just like, we can't wait for incidents to take place before we have the kinds like, you know, before we start talking about these kinds of things. One thing I like to, um, thank you by the way. Um, you know, I'm not, I wasn't there, so but I would like to think, just like I'd like to think that I would do this in other circumstances, that what you would do is call the cops and just be like, okay, you know, we he committed a crime. Let's deal with it. And I know that's just not, not what happens, you know. And so many, so many of these matters that you see, particularly when it comes to legal compliance, you know, yep. it becomes an internal company matter when, you know, it's really a criminal, a criminal matter. And somehow this this separation between well these things are crimes when they happen outside of the workplace but they're not really crimes when they work inside when they happen inside the workplace has happened this uh yeah i and i i do i appreciate that perspective i think it's also just from uh you know thinking about you know thinking about it through the lens of the person that this happened to right, right? is that is that, you know, and again, if you're going back to kind of like what's the, if the goal is to restore safety and respect, like first and foremost for the person who is impacted, you know, I think this is actually what you're speaking to is one of the really, you know, unspoken tensions that exists in human resources, right? Because if that individual who experienced sexual assault in that room did not want to report from a survivor perspective, mm. it's like well within their right. Yeah. And like, I, you know, and I think it's, you know, the most important thing you do to somebody who's just had such a complete loss of control um, in their life is to give them back as much control as you possibly can. However, as you're saying is that, and particularly, you know, it's and I, I'm not I'm not a lawyer, but it's like sort of, you know, but I think sort of based on my my experience and understanding of the law is that is that that there is a little bit of like a double a, a sort of a two ways of thinking about this, where it's like it is an incident that takes place between two people. It is also a, an organization has a legal responsibility to create a safe workplace for their employees. And so when those two things are in tension with each other, so for example, if a person was sexually assaulted, but they don't actually want to report it, um, and then the company is, you know, sort of like, well, what do we do as an organization in order to, you know, keep ourselves within the law? Um, you know, it's, it's like the, those things are not always the same thing. And so, right. and it, it can go other ways. It's like you could have somebody who wants to go file a report with the police, you know, wants to go file a report with the police, but the company doesn't want to cooperate. You could have a person mm. that, that um, you know, that simply just goes straight to the EOC to file a report and then yeah. skips the, and skips the company process because they recognize that it's not going to be helpful. So, um, so yeah. That's, uh, so again, it's like once incidents take place, things get really messy really fast. 
And so, so like our opportunity though, is to be looking at, looking at incidents with not just a compliance and follow-up perspective, but also looking at them from a prevention perspective. And the one that you picked is like a particularly tricky one because it's involving the leader of an organization. But let's say that that was more of like your senior sales manager that, you know, it's like, really it's okay. Well, what if, how do I look in the mirror and say, what could we have done to stop this? And why don't we start doing that now to stop it from happening again? Absolutely. Um, one of, one of the, you know, a lot of our audience members are in medium to small, small-sized businesses that don't necessarily have the resources or even just sort of like the organizational energy to get even sort of like basic, basic um, initiatives off the ground, you mm-hmm. know. Particularly, I'm thinking of people that have been thrown into an HR role. Maybe they don't even have an HR title, but they're doing that right. work. What right. advice? Like they were doing operations and yeah. now they're doing HR too. Yes, yeah, got like it. Please file all these I-9s. Um, right. That's what you yeah. do now. Yeah. Um, what advice would you have for uh, people like that that are looking to prevent, you know, prevent sexual yeah. harassment in their workplace? How do they get started? Right. Well, I mean, so honestly, that's why like, that's one of the main reasons that I wrote this book is because I think there's very little out there that that provides that high level framework of like, what does an effective approach to skills based sexual harassment um, work look like? Because I think typically, organizations think, well, oh, okay, we're required to do some kind of compliance training, we need to have a policy. So we're going to share that policy with people. And then we've done we've done what we need to do on sexual harassment. Um, and, and the other thing is that I think that there's like a myth and misperception that HR needs to own all of it. And, and so it's like, you know, if, if you're the, if you're an HR, if HR is on the corner of your desk, what you need is you need a way to skill up your entire organization and empower them to skill themselves up. And so, you know, so essentially it's like the sort of the five steps of a skills-based approach is like one you know, you want to start with compliance, but you don't want to end there. So it's kind of teasing. It's like letting people understand that there is a framework to thinking about this and that you've got to do the compliance part because it, you know, because it's required and um, and it gives you the tools that you need to hold people, uh, hold people accountable. I think the place where HR can be helpful is is also creating some transparency around what reporting processes look like and kind of like what the HR black investigation black box is like at your, you know, at your particular organization. I think too many organizations don't share that. And then an incident happens and then that's not the rest, the right time to share it. And so then it just really has an impact on trust within the organization mm. because whether, you know, no matter what, what the outcome is, if people don't trust the process, then the organization is left in a place of not feeling safe, everyone. And right. so, so I think it's, you know, so one is like, so start with compliance, but don't end there. Um, two is, is do a little bit of assessment around experience in a broad range of uncomfortable conversations related to sexual harassment prevention and response. Um, on my website, I've got like a, a online and a downloadable survey that you can do. That's essentially just like, so again, it goes back to the, like, don't go in and try to teach somebody French unless like a group of people, French, unless you know how many of them speak French and to what degree, or like, or don't teach them math. If don't teach them algebra, if they don't know how to add. So it's like, so it's just get, you know, get a get a base like you would not teach any other skill without doing some kind of baseline assessment so like get do a baseline assessment on it 
Um, then I think it's like really introducing people to the idea that it's like this is uncomfortable work, but it's like uncomfortable conversations is a core leadership and management skill that you're going to need to manage diverse teams, right? Like it's not HR's job to like manage your team, like it's your job to manage your team. And this is a skill that you're going to need. Um, and then, you know, and then the, the last two steps are really about investing in some practice. So that's doing scenarios that aren't scenarios where it's like, is this or is this not sexual harassment? But it's kind of scenarios like what we've been talking about. So one, you know, one is certainly around intervention. A second one would be around handling a disclosure, whether it's a disclosure of something that took place in the workplace or a disclosure of somebody sharing, you know, an experience that they'd had as a child or in college, right? Mm. And so I think that's something that more and more happens in the workplace. And then it's changing your habits, right? So like, how can you proactively as an organization and as a manager, start conversations about relationship, healthy workplace relationships, appropriate boundaries, managing conflict, navigating power dynamics. How do you start those conversations before they become a problem um, rather than waiting for them to become a problem and then having a bunch of, you know, less productive conversations afterwards after people are already in a a state of not feeling safe. Great. Thanks so much. Um, I think that's all the time that we have right now. Great. Um, But thank you again for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Listeners, we are always interested in suggestions that you might have for what we should cover next. Feel free to reach out to me at jdavis at blr.com if you have any thoughts or concerns or if you just want to say hi. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.